Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day Kim, how are you? I'm good, Andrew. How are you going this morning? I'm good. Lovely to see you. You too. Nina's not in, I can't find Nina around here. No, right? but we're talking about one of my favourite topics today, workers' comps. So we are going to do that speaking. and you're going to try and not throw expletives in. I'll do my best. I think I'll be able to survive it today. <laughs> I bet that. But look, We've got no ridiculous public holidays coming up. So we no, we don't have any. <laughs> Let's not go down that path. <laughs> New South Wales election. I know. It'll be interesting to see if, um, because obviously Tasmania now being the only Liberal state yes. and the only state apart from New South Wales not having industrial manslaughter the laws enacted. If, and Minns um, has made it very clear he's going to enact it. So yeah. he's looking at that and also regulating the gig economy like in Victoria. So, yeah, I think we're going to see some legislation yeah. very quickly. They're putting, Kim, most of the Boland reports, so the WHS Act, the ban on insurance, all those things are there. Mm. So I have no doubt we're seeing that, which is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely it is. All right, we want to move on to some cases now because yeah. we've got rather a lot of them today. Lonnie and Light live better? Yeah, so this is a, a really interesting, pretty basic <laughs> anti-discrimination case really where it's just a matter where the HR manager looked at fairly significant disabilities of the worker but didn't really think about is the worker actually, or was a job applicant, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, and this is one of the rare cases where you get someone who's bought a claim because they didn't get a job yeah. but was the most capable person on the list yeah. and, as you say, had very significant disabilities but... As you said, the HR manager looked at them, listened to them and yeah, thought, can't do, it. can't do the job. So looked at the physical capability, then went again and made some assumptions mm. about what financial support they could get to actually make the job, the adjustments that were necessary. Yeah. And the court found actually the woman was fit for the inherent requirements and the adjustments could be supported by the NDIS. Mm. So a bit of a risk, isn't it? Yeah, well, failed to get any objective evidence at all, which is an absolute must if you're looking at fit for the inherent requirements. Of so what would you do, Kim? I'm, I've got, I'm down to two people. One of them is more capable than the other, but one of them is presenting and candid like this woman mm. was about a physical disability, show about the heart attack she had a year ago, all those things. Yeah. What would you do then? Well, you send her off for an assessment. Yeah. And and, what, but what you need to do, sorry, is provide the doctor with very clear description about the inherent requirements of the role so the doctor clearly understands what the physical capacity needs to be to be able to complete the role without any risk of injury. You can do that. Sometimes we're sending the job description but also a brief video on your mobile phone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And tell the doctor whatever they do, don't tell us about things which don't relate to the inherent requirements and confirm yeah. with the candidate that's what we're going to do so that candidate feels safe to make levels of disclosure. Exactly. Because sometimes in that disclosure, what they think is not part of the inherent requirements, the job actually is part of the inherent requirements of the job. So this is really a case about making assumptions, isn't it? Yeah. And how you actually go about doing it right. All right, let's, let's have a look at the next case. Jaroska and Brand, pretty interesting case, again, which is about medical panels. Yeah. You see me change the paper over there, because I'm saying, I'm looking at a case, again, it's not about medical panels. Yeah. There are two levels of workers' compensation, there are medical panels. There's one of the workers' comp to determine whether the person is injured and the cause that sits behind it, yep. if you don't get your evidence right. Then you go off to the county court and sometimes the judge can go. Refer you off to the Refer you off to a panel. And I just want to say this really clearly, you don't want to end up in front of a panel. No, they're very worker-biased in my experience. We might, we might try and step out of that a bit. <laughs> um, they are pretty appoint- direct. They, they are appointed because they have a benevolent view of workers and their role is benevolent because it's beneficial legislation. So in the absence of evidence that meets the standard, 
of the balance of probabilities, they will always favour the worker. Mm. Okay, I just want to be clear about yeah, that. Right. But this is not the case this time, is it? It's sort of uh, this shows some good work by the insurer and the employer. Yeah, so they were able to put enough evidence in front of the panel to convince them that the injury was not work-related or the impairment was not work-related so, in this case. Kim, this is the stuff you deal with every day. Yeah. How hard is it to get that right? It's really hard. Yeah, yeah that's um, hard, isn't it? Sometimes because the insurer itself uses doctors and you don't have a choice to get around yeah. those doctors. Yeah. In Victoria, you do have a little bit of a choice because under 103 you can go sideways and get your own medical evidence. Well, you can, but I find too, unless the doctor you send them to is already on the WorkSafe panel, yeah. the insurer can say we're not even going to look at their opinion. So it can be really frustrating. Yeah, so the answer for that is if you're going outside of a panel doctor, yeah. you're going there to get a determination of what is the issue and then you've got to understand that the insurer will only ask a series of set questions as well. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very hard. Not only will they only use panel members, but there are only a set of questions you can use. So WorkSafe have approved. Yeah, yeah so you can do it to try and influence the nature of WorkSafe's action or you can be smarter and make sure you get the requisite evidence you need so it doesn't end up in a panel mm-hmm. and you have compelling factual evidence that you take to the doctor yeah. to allow it to do it. And that's why you use a panel doctor and why you use 103. Yeah. All right. Well, good case. Good case. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to go on to Granger and Gibby. Okay. So we've got an unfair dismissal case here, but it's all around safety breaches. Can um, I just say this is the Queensland Industrial Relations Commission, yeah, okay. which is like the Western Australian one. High out there, not always the best decision making, but nonetheless, this is a good decision. It's a good decision good in this deci- case. Yep. Yep. So, as I said, council worker had been driving a, a slasher. Slasher, yeah. What are they called? Slasher. Right, yeah. Grass slasher. Slasher. And drive on. Um, at speed, didn't implement any of the training or induction that he'd received, wasn't wearing appropriate PPE. He'd been trained, denied he'd been trained, but they could produce evidence that he'd been trained, he'd been inducted, he'd been counselled before for poor and unsafe misconduct. With the slasher. And he'd operated heavy machinery before, which is obviously very high risk in an unsafe manner. And so naturally his dismissal was upheld as being... Yeah, and can I just take you, whenever you wonder about things like this, so this is sort of a bit of a golden rule because you're dealing with heavy plant and you're dealing with heavy dangerous plant and you're exposing it on roadways to other vehicles. So nothing could be more dangerous. So it's sort of a golden rule about having another vehicle to show that that vehicle's there. All those things are there because of the very high risk that exists. And what his actions amounted to is a deliberate and willful breach Mm. of those rules. And that's actually the very beginning of what is serious misconduct under the regulations. So this is a good case to remind you, A, please document Mm. your training, please document your counselling, because it's all that evidence that made this a compelling case. It went from an inadvertent mistake, which is his argument, Mm. to an obvious case where he had been deliberate about ignoring the directions he'd been given, yeah. breach of a lawful and reasonable direction, you're home on three parts mm-hmm. of what is serious misconduct, imminent risk to himself, yeah. deliberate failure to comply with the direction, and then failure to comply with a lawful and reasonable direction. So he's dead in the water, and he was, and yeah. he will have no success if he wants to take it any further. Yeah. All right, we've got a lot of cases today. I don't know, yeah. the guys have got very excited. So what are we up to now? Jamsec, I'm going to deal with Jamsec really quickly. What's the High Court case about independent contractors determining whether someone's an independent contractor or an employee? The High Court said, look, you go to the contract and in the absence of a contract, you then go back to the traditional method of looking the way they were employed after they were employed. But the primary thing you do is you go to the contract. 
From that, there was an argument that the independent contractor would be entitled to superannuation guarantee under the Superannuation Guarantee Act. I want to tell you this case is, you just got to ignore it, really. It's, yeah. it's an irrelevant case, but we're dealing with it because people are talking about it. What the court did is go to the actual definition of the entitlement to get superannuation guarantee, because independent contractors can be paid, can be required to be paid superannuation, but only where they're a natural person. This was a partnership and therefore they had no entitlement. So that's the end of that case. Let's go on to the next one. Let me clean that one up quickly. Okay, CFMEU and MSS Strategic Medical. Fun case because in the IR strategy that we run, it's not uncommon for us to say, look, put it out to the vote and ignore the union, mm. okay? But, by the way, we do what's the right thing. We don't just say yeah. crap. We just get on, get on and do the right thing. But what MSS Strategic said is they carefully, during the negotiation with the CFME, boxed them into a corner where the union repeatedly refused to move on an issue. Mm. Five issues. Five issues. After and, many meetings, yeah. And so what the organisation did, without discussing and getting the approval of the other bargainers, you just go and put it to the vote. Yeah. Okay? You can do that mm. where you're in a position where you can't move, where they are no longer able to move and there's this intransigence, you can do it. And so the bargaining order that was sought from the union failed, which was to stop the vote. Yeah. My point is that when you're bargaining and you know you've got the ownership of your voters, you know that your people are close to you, mm. box the union in quickly. Mm. Pick the arguments that you need to have the fight with that they won't move on have the fight with them, repeatedly say, never deal with money first. You always deal that at the end because it's the total cost of enterprise agreement, so you only negotiate money at the very end. But these four or five issues give you the boxing capacity to lock them into a stage where they can't get an order to stop the vote. And if you know you've got your members, you know you've got a nail, go for it. Yeah. Okay? So great case, really good case, supportive of the strategy that we use on a regular basis. We're giving the CFME a bit of a bashing today. Yeah. <laughs> I did notice, I noticed that John Sickers, ex-partner, who was, used to be a CFMEU lawyer, as she's been charged with incitement to cause death of him. So it's, they're having a bad run at the moment, aren't they, really? <laughs> so, not only his the, case didn't help them. No, not no. only the manufacturing division trying to break away from the federal court, but he's personally being attacked by his ex-wife. <laughs> anyway, by the by, CFMEU and Osmocap, which is a case... I don't know actually why it was run. I don't know why it was uh, run. This is really a case where an enterprise bargain allowed working on public holidays with no higher remuneration as an offset because of the level of wages that were being paid was so significant that it would capture it. And the union said, well, that just ignores Section 44 and 114 of the Act, which says you've actually got to get people's permission. And you didn't get people's permission, and people's permission is more than just telling people to do it. It is actually individually gaining agreement and demonstrating the reach of that agreement. Yeah. Now, why this case ever, ever went ahead, I don't know, because it is a rule of law that the National Employment Standards have primacy over any enterprise agreement. Yeah. And the National Employment Standards also have beneath it an explanatory memorandum that talks about its intent and purpose. So when a court comes to look at which one applies, they know exactly what the National Employment Standards are saying. Yeah. And when you have to get someone's consent, you have to get their consent. Yeah. You can't just press a button and go, good luck. So they lost. And the CFMU won. Mm. So there you go, CFMU. Good so win. They did get one over. Yeah, they did <laughs> win that one. All right, we're going to head on to the major topic today. And that's why I got Kim along. I shoved Nina out. <laughs> Reasonable management action is one of those discussions which seems to just go all over the place. And it goes all over the place partly because there's two stages towards reasonable management action. There's the conduct that is the pre performance management disciplinary action, and mm -hmm. there is which is subject to what is called subjective intention of the person who participates. They've got an eggshell skull. That is, 
they bring to life the judgments they make based on what's going on in their brain and their life. Yeah. And so long as it's not delusional, so long as it's the event did happen and they form that perception, it will be compensable. Yeah. And then you go into an objective test when you're managing someone that the actions you take are well, two fairnesses, really. Yeah. It was fair that you take the action yeah. and you did it in a fair way, which yeah. is what a reasonable management action is. But unfortunately, Kim, the workplace, the workers' compensation tribunals and jurisdictions make decisions which are pretty interesting compared to employment law. <laughs> you hate workers' comp, don't you? Yep. <laughs> well, I'd like them to align with the law every now and well, again. Well, that would be nice. It would my job a lot easier. Yeah, every now and again if they just thought, gee, that's got nothing to do with employment law, we're yeah. just making shit up, I'd be a lot happier. But yeah. they do. So if we look at some of the examples, we'll come to your case yeah. in a second that we're going to talk about. But some of the examples are if I'm going to stand someone down, I have to provide them with a support person to tell them I'm going to stand them down. Now, just remember, ladies and gentlemen, the reason we stand people down is an imminent risk to someone's health. Yeah. So, of course, we'd have a support person, but employment law says you don't have to do that. You've got to offer them EAP if you understand that. If you're going to do an investigation, you've got to tell them exactly the scope, the scope of the investigation. You've got to offer EAP for them. Yeah, and when you, yeah, that's before you get to the things which is required by employment law, okay? So there's a whole lot of stuff that workers' compensation does because it is beneficial legislation around a worker that says that a worker must not be placed in a position where you create a psychological hazard that's not controlled. So by telling you I'm going to stand you down, that definitely creates a psychological hazard. What is the control that I put in place to be satisfied that you are safe? By telling you I'm going to participate in the investigation, I must make full disclosure. So even to say that there's going to be additionally discussion later on this afternoon about an issue that's happened, which is a sexual harassment issue, another case, I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. I'm going to give you documents that show you that. Can I say in each jurisdiction, some are much more document heavy than others. So in Queensland, you do that in a documentary form every single day of the week. I'd advise you to do documentary form every yep. week. It's a bit more relaxed in Victoria and New South Wales, but in Queensland, it was the land of cutting down trees, okay? So when we look at all those things, Kim, as we come to deal with any issue which relates to a person's misconduct, what are the things we need to do? to tick off the workers' compensation risks. Okay. Well, as you said, always offer a support person, always offer EAP if you have it, always give adequate notice as to what they're walking into because we often see people saying, oh, I was ambushed and taken by surprise and I was shocked and horrified and all this sort of language. It's really about being really fair and just we'll talk about perception. I think we'll... Yeah, okay. So, I, look, I think my dad used to say you'd be best to your worst. That was his com- yeah. conversation. And often when we're going to these things, these are red flag employees. We do know who they are. So we know where we're going with them. And what we really need to do is go, okay, step back, plan it, document it. Yeah. What am I going to do? I'm going to stand you down. Okay. So I'm going to say to you, look, Kim, I've got to have a serious conversation about something that arose. This is the nature of the allegation that is being made. I'm going to give it to you so you can have a read. Mm-hmm. I'd try and probably have someone say to you beforehand, look, is there anyone you'd like to be present to the extent that you can? It's very hard when you're having that discussion. But also here's the number for EAP. If you've got any troubles, let us know. And here's my mobile number if you're worrying about it. That would get down around the initial discussion of we're going to go down this path. But always document and give them a letter which sets out stuff so you're at least along the way. Because there's a couple of cases where people were given letters and were given that sort of stuff and they still said they were shocked. Mm. And even the workers' comp tribunal said, well, but they did everything right. Mm. So process oh, said, yeah. So we've given them notice of what we're going to do. It could be an investigation, could be a stand-down, could be disciplinary hearing. What do we do next? 
Well, we've told them about that. We've appointed a time. They turn up at the meeting. What do we do? Yeah, look at this. You're looking absolutely <laughs> confused, aren't you? Well, that's, you should be confused because we've told them everything we need yes. to do, but we'd be satisfied if they don't turn up with a support person. That, you know, you're sure you want to go with Hendricks oh, okay. and with a support person. Here's EAP. You serve them with a fresh letter of delegations if necessary, with more detail. You take time. You do all those things, okay? So it's the first part the employment law doesn't require you to do. Mm. It's the second part that employment law does require if you're going to terminate only, not if you're going to investigate, not if you're going to stand down. So I think, you know, when Kim's looking at me with perplexed eyes, what she's really... Because I thought you'd already covered off on it. Yeah, no, no, but but the part is you have to repeat it all over again. So you do it twice in any process you're dealing with. So if you stand down, investigate, and then go to discipline, you're going to end up doing it five times, okay? Can you please keep detailed contemporaneous notes of everything that you do? All of that is evidence which is admissible of the truth of what you're doing, mm-hmm. and so are those documents. Yeah. So let's talk about Podesta as the case that we're going okay. to talk about today, and I'll let you have a bit of a shot about that, okay. and then I'll talk about Murad at the end of it, okay? Right. So Podesta was like, two issues arose in this case, two disciplinary resource management action or management action issues that arose. And so the issue of the case was whether or not it was carried out reasonably. So the management action was certainly had to be done, reasonable to be done, because the guy had engaged in misconduct. I'll come to that. But So the first meeting was to address a team of workers who had allegedly threatened a new staff member to say, we got the last guy sacked, look out or you'll be next. So the general manager of the council came in, met with the group, but it was perceived by some of them that he was threatening because he adopted an accusatory tone, even though people had denied that they were responsible for the note. He still didn't accept that. Um, and we're doing a murder case, how they yeah. eventually got their man. Yeah. <laughs> he raised his voice. He, he made an analogy to the Clarendon Claremont, was it? Claremont, Claremont serial killer about the police investigation and said, if you don't look out, none of you will have a job because there won't be any workshop left. That attitude and behaviour of the GM, even though the issue had to be addressed, he didn't carry it out in a reasonable manner and it was perceived as being threatening. So claim got up, work cover claim would get up on that basis alone. The second thing they did was they investigated the team leader, Podesta, not only about the note but said, we want to interview you about other inappropriate conduct. But what they interviewed him about was previous conduct that had never been addressed previously. All put to him previously. All put to him previously. And they just referred to it as inappropriate conduct. He rocked up for the investigation and he was hit with allegations about inappropriate conduct towards a former employee and allegations that tantamounted to theft. So, again, shock, horror, I didn't know any about this, wasn't given fair warning, so his claim got up on that as well. Whereas if they just had taken the really simple steps that you talked about, First, you never raise your voice, you never slam fish, you never show any aggression in a disciplinary And you don't, you don't bring up stuff to try and damage a person, you just deal with the issue. Yeah. I think... What the judge in this case or tribunal member got is that this was a fix. This was a fix-up. Mm. Uh, here they, they're worried about someone stealing stuff, and not stealing stuff, about threatening someone. Yeah. And next thing they're raising these allegations with some age, and it's a way of fitting it up. So it's mm. done for a collateral purpose. Yeah. It's done to put pressure upon this guy. And it's inappropriate. Employment yeah. law would struggle with it, but yeah. it wouldn't say it was unlawful, but workers' compensation quite clearly does. Yeah. And look, the other part is... When we talk about Murad, which is another recent case, which is where a guy suffered from a psychotic illness, 
there's sort of two parts along the performance track. There is that part which says, okay, this is what the person does for a job and how you interact, and then there is the performance disarray process or investigative process that sits over here. At the first stage, the way you treat me or the way I talk to you has got nothing to do with performance management, okay? Can you just go and get that for me? Is not a performance issue. It's a direction that's given. It's inappropriate and it's not the way you should say it. But if I'm suffering from, if I'm a vulnerable and gentle person and I feel threatened by that, my subjective understanding of it is the basis for an acceptance of a claim. Mm. And that got a bit muddled in, in the case we were just Podesta case and what we're talking about. But in Murren's case, this guy suffered from delusions. And mm. so some of the events just didn't occur at all. Yeah. And as a result of that, his claim was rejected. But it was a very clever and detailed judgment mm. identifying the importance of the subjective test. So I just... Put that warning out there. When yeah. we're talking about reasonable management action, don't conflate it into non-performance issues. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. The day-to-day running of the business is subjective test. When you're doing performance management, this way Kim's talking about how to do it correctly, it is an objective test yeah. based on the evidence that you have. Yeah. So if you don't keep contemporaneous written notes, if you don't write letters, if you don't do other sort of stuff, it's he said, she says. Yeah. And it will fail because it's beneficial legislation on the word of the employee while on the acceptance. Does that all make sense? Goody good. We're on to the problem. You've only got a few minutes left, Kim. Okay. You're feeling better now? (laughs) Not a bad word is stuck from your lips. It's incredible. You know how much I love doing this. Okay, let's have the problem up for it. Here we go. Okay. Let's see if they got um, picked up your spelling errors, Andrew. Oh, thank you very much for that. (laughs) Mick struggled with Nolene. Nolene had a disability causing her to drag her left leg and was unable to lift more than 20 kilograms. The disability arose from a motor vehicle accident. She also had a head injury causing frontal lobe damage, which impaired her impulse control and temper. Her role was not client-facing. It was a packaging and picking role in the warehouse, and she used automated lifts. There was never a need to lift over 20 kilos. A neuropsychologist and neurosurgeon had said she was fit for work but needed gentle supervision and space to think before dealing with an issue, and this allowed her to rein in her impulses and emotions. Mick ran a tight ship. They were a contractor for major shops and supermarkets. His side of the business was picking and packing. The other side was logistics. The logistics side drove the picking and packaging side and it involved delivery obligations and substantial capital for wages and wages for wages. The stats in the business showed that Nolene was running at around 82% efficiency. Most but one other employee who was less efficient and badly behaved ran at over 94%. Mick decided to limit Nolene's work to one aisle, didn't pick it up. <laughs> and my new, new granddaughter is called Isla, spelled I-S-L-A, and I'm afraid it's, it just gets me every time. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. I'll, that was, I'll put my hand I'll up. I'll accept that as an excuse. That's okay, excuse anyway. Me. Mick decided to limit her work to one aisle, doing the volume small work. Why? Because it would improve output and some of the objects were over 20 kilos and if she didn't need to move, she couldn't. Or she didn't actually she couldn't. It also reduced his conflict for her for her with her because when he directed her to do other work, it often fell into heated conflict. He didn't tell Nolene what he was doing. He just reprogrammed her computer to ensure her tickets, which what was required of her limited her to one file. I, yeah, I did it again twice. So nothing there again. Halfway through the day, she approached Mick and asked why she was only doing one aisle of high volume. <laughs> Don't keep Mick saying. Said, <laughs> because you are so slow and inefficient and your injuries limit what you do quickly. So I limited you here to make you more efficient. Nolene blew up and called him a dumber. Oh, you made me swear. <laughs> dumber, idiot. 
and she resigned, walking from the floor and going home. Her husband rang three hours later and withdrew the resignation. Okay, so we're off into the questions. Was Nolene unable to withdraw her resignation and would it be a deemed termination at her will? Okay. She could withdraw if, so the law is under Section 114 of the Act. Did I get that right? No? We're making shit up, I think. Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, there's a section in the Fair Work Act. <laughs> if resignation is given in the heat of the moment, it can be withdrawn. So if someone resigns, the employer doesn't have, or, oh, I'll, yeah, I'll, let me do it this way. If Kim and I enter into an argument, yeah. Kim just cracks it. You're a dumbass, Andrew. I'm yeah. out of here. See, she said it then. <laughs> and she just storms out. Harder for Kim because she doesn't suffer from, well, she may suffer a bit of frontal lobe issues, <laughs> but doesn't suffer frontal lobe issues. But even then, if that was retracted within a 24-hour period and there was the heat of the moment in it, then that would have been a lawful retraction. Here, because of her mental state, there's absolutely no doubt that it's not a resignation that could be enforced as a termination of the will of her. So yeah. she would have a basis if they said, no, you're, you're terminated, yeah. you did it, to be. bring an unfair dismissal claim yeah. as a termination of the will of the organisation. Two, if Nolene brought a workers' compensation claim, would she succeed him? Absolutely. I think you meant to say more than that, actually. <laughs> it's certainly, well, we've yes. still got another four minutes left. You're yeah, definitely okay. going to say more. <laughs> the actions of Mick were not reasonable. Yeah. By limiting her, he didn't give her any forewarning. Yeah. Absolutely. So let, let's remember this isn't even a reasonable management action issue. This is she because there was no performance management. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So this it's arguable the last bit may have been performance management mm -hmm. and it wasn't a fair thing to do. He didn't have the conversation, so mm -hmm. it just wasn't a fair thing to do, yeah. full stop. But this is really her perspective on what occurred mm -hmm. and what she saw is her role being diminished without any, any discussion, and she felt isolated, alone, hurt. She never claimed so long as she had an injury, really. Yeah, that's right. That's true. Yeah. So were there psychological hazards and who would be prosecuted? Well, there is an abundance of psychological hazards. So it is the nature of workflow. So remember, if you go in and you look at two elements, which is how work is delegated and organisational justice, treating someone in this manner because they've got a disability is a lack of social justice, failing. And secondly, Reducing someone's work without consultation is a psychological hazard, particularly to a limited area. On top of all of that, the failure to do it in a way around a disciplinary process means it's three major psychological hazards. So who could be prosecuted? Well, it depends on the nature of the injury, okay? You're not going to get a prosecution for being unhappy. But if it did damage it to a, to a stage that's developed psychological injury, then it would be both Mick and the organisation would be liable. Mick would be liable because he was the actor. He was the person who did it. He was the person with agency. And secondly, in all pieces of safety legislation, there is an attribution provision, 143 in Victoria, which says the actions of an individual are the actions of the company. So, yeah. And now, was there discrimination and could Nolene bring a general protections claim for discrimination? Yeah, she was definitely treated adversely on account of her injury or disability, sorry, not injury. Yeah, so, yes, both in the state and federal legislation, if you put her against a comparator, if you're looking at federal legislation, a person without a disability, was she treated differently, significantly? Did she have a performance issue? Yes, it should have been dealt with. Mm. Does that make sense? And if it is, relates to her disability, then you go through a process of saying, what are the reasonable adjustments that can be made? If we can't make those, you could deal with under inherent requirements arguments. Yeah. But at the moment, the difference is relatively small between her and others, one. Mm. And secondly, it was all done in a way without any consultation or discussion or seeking to make adjustments. 
and has resulted absolutely discrimination and really adverse action because of the reverse onus that sits upon the employer and Nick in this case, they would have to show that they did this for a reason that didn't relate to the disability and Nick's own language says he did. So he's nailed, isn't he? So there's some difficulty. So it was good, Kim. And we really got through, I think, remarkably well. I've had to put words, swearing words, and try and catch you. I'm sorry about that. We're going to see you at the same time next week. And thanks very much for coming along, Kim. It was lovely. And remember, thumbs up, please. Cheers. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.